you see John today, just tell him thank you and just what a blessing he is to us and just how thankful we are that God has just blessed us with him and just how faithful John has been to this church to bless us with his service. So we are so thankful for that. Well, this morning as we go to the book of John, the gospel of John, we're going to continue talking about what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And of course, as a church, we're going through the book of Luke together. And we have got to Luke chapter 15. And for me, Luke 15 is just one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Because Luke 15 is all about those who were lost, but eventually found by God. And so it's a chapter, a whole chapter on lost and found. But really, it's a chapter about God. It's a chapter about God's heart and God's compassion and God's love for those who are lost. And so we started looking a few weeks ago at Luke chapter 15, and it's just a compilation of three stories. The story of a lost sheep, a story of a lost coin, and the story of a lost son. And so as we're looking through those stories, really what I want you to grasp is I want you to grasp the heart of God for those things that are lost in which we all were, until His love came to us and found us and saved us. But God's heart is burdened for the lost. And when I say things like there are 273 million people in North America alone who are lost, God's heart is burdened and His compassion goes out for them. How do we know? Well, just look at Jesus' compassion for them as he walked this earth. That's how you can know the heart of God, is just looking at Jesus and who he is and what he did and what he came to do, which is to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, 10. So we're going through this chapter, but we're going to other chapters. And last week we looked at Luke 16 because I wanted you to see just why God loves the lost so much. And the reason we looked at Luke 16 is because we saw the clearest picture in all the Bible of hell. And the reason God loves the lost is because his heart is for no one to be destroyed, for no one to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. And so I wanted you to see why God's heart is for the lost. And then this morning, I want you to see how God saves the lost. Because if you understand this, I believe it'll change your life. Because you know what happens most of the time when we read the Bible? We just read parts of the Bible and we study just a few verses of the Bible. But we don't see the whole of the Bible. But if you understand the whole of the Bible and you understand God's heart for the lost and why He loves the lost and then how He saves the lost, it'll change the way you live your life. So this morning we're going to look at the how. Because I don't believe we understand that as a church. Last week, I, showed, or I shared some statistics with you about teenagers and how we as Southern Baptists are not reaching teenagers like we used to. In fact, in just the last 20 years, our baptisms in those from 12 to 17 are down 38%. And baptisms, of course, are how we know who gets saved. Well, this week, as I was studying and just researching more, I found this statistic, and I just want you to listen to this, because this is, this was shocking to me, it might not be to you, but it was shocking to me. But in 1972, as Southern Baptists, we baptized 
137,667 teenagers in 1972. 130,667 teenagers were baptized in 1962. In 2018, Southern Baptists only baptized 57,552 teenagers. Now that's a dramatic decrease in the number of teenagers we're seeing coming to Jesus. But now listen to this. In 1972, do you know what the population of the United States was? It was 209 million. Do you know what the population is today? It's 327 million. So when you take the rise in population in the last 50 years, roughly less than 50 years, but in the last 50 years, and you take a decrease in the number of teenagers that we're seeing coming to Christ in our churches, the numbers are staggering. If you're a statistician, you could figure that out. But it is staggering. And if you don't know what happens to a nation, to a people who doesn't win the next generation for Jesus Christ, you can go read a book in the Old Testament and it will show you. It's the book of Nahum. And the book of Nahum comes just right after the book of Jonah in history. And Jonah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And you can read Jonah and we usually study the portion about Jonah because he's disobedient to God. And then finally God gets his attention with a whale and he is spit up on dry land and he finally does what God says to do. But what God told him to do in the beginning is to go share what is coming to the great city of Nineveh. God's judgment because of their wickedness, because of their sin. So eventually Jonah gets there and he does it. And the Bible says in Nineveh the greatest revival in the history of the world breaks out. Because everyone in that city is saved. Everyone. They hear the preaching of God. They hear His voice. They turn to God in repentance. And they are all saved. But Nahum comes just a hundred years after the greatest revival in the history of the world. And you know what happens in Nahum? The city of Nineveh is destroyed. Why? Because there's no one there who believes in God. In just a hundred years, no one is left who believes in God. Why? Because they didn't tell their children and their grandchildren about what happened in the city of Nineveh. And the next generation didn't know. What do you think is happening in the United States of America? What do you think is happening in Tuscaloosa County, in Northport, Alabama? We're not telling our children. We're not telling our grandchildren. And what is going to be the result? Well, go read Nahum. Just go read it. It's three chapters. You can read it pretty quick. Go read it. And you'll see the results of just not being obedient and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just a few weeks ago, as we were fasting as a church for 21 days, Towards the end of that fast, just the last few days, I started studying Luke chapter 15 to get ready for the sermons that were coming up. And as I studied Luke 15, God put a burden on my heart that I can't describe to you in words. It was almost a heaviness, a weight 
And it was for the lost. And it wasn't for the lost around the world. And there are a lot of lost around the world. And I talk about that. And I talk about missions all the time. But it wasn't for that lostness, the vastness of that lostness. But it was for the lostness right here in our community. Because every day of your life, you come in contact with a lot of people who are lost, whether you know it or not. They might be sitting beside you in church, but they are still lost all around us. And I realized as a pastor that I have done a horrible job of conveying God's heart to you and conveying God's plan to you of how He saves the lost. So this morning, I just want to read just a few verses in John 16. Because I believe, as I've studied this, that this might be the most important thing Jesus told His disciples, His followers. And the reason I say this is because it's the last instructions Jesus gives them on this earth. This is it. Because this takes place Just hours before he is going to be crucified, less than 12 hours before the crucifixion, Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he prays, right before he is arrested. He speaks this word into their life. The last instruction he gives them is this. Now, most time, if you're on your deathbed, if you're about to die, the last thing you tell someone is going to be pretty important, right? Of course it is, because you're not going to get to tell them anything else. So I want you to see what Jesus says. So John 16, I'm going to start reading in verse 5. This is what he says. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me. And not a one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate which is the Holy Spirit, He won't come. If I do go away, then I will send Him to you. And He comes, He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in Me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see Me no more. Judgment will come Because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There's so much more I want to tell you. But you can't bear it now. So when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Now, In this text, just before the cross, just before Jesus Christ dies, just before he is taken from this earth and taken from the disciples, his followers, he tells them, it is good for you that I go. Now, why in the world would Jesus Christ say, it is good for you that I go? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. 
He is the visible image of the invisible God. Why in the world is Jesus saying, guys, it's good for me to go? Why is he saying it is good for me to go? This is why he's saying it. Because unless he goes, the world cannot be saved. Now think about that. I'm not just talking about the cross. I'm not just talking about the resurrection. We know he had to do that so the world can be saved, right? Of course. But unless he is taken from this earth, the world can never be saved, even if he goes to the cross, even if he is resurrected from the dead. Why? Because no one will know. No one will ever know what Jesus Christ did unless he leaves and unless he sends who? The Spirit of God. This morning, I want you to see why He sends the Spirit. And then how the message that Jesus saves is made known. So in our text there, He says the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will do three things. And all three things have to do with conviction. He says He will convict the world of its sin. He will convict the world of righteousness. Then he will convict the world of judgment. Three convictions. Now that word convict, we don't really understand, I don't think, what that word means from a biblical context. Because when we think of conviction, what do we think of? We think of a feeling, right? If you're convicted of your sin, what do you feel like? Well, you feel bad, right? You feel like you need to do something. You feel like you need to get right with God. That's what conviction is for us. It's a feeling. But the word here in John 16 is not a feeling. It's actually a word that comes from a court of law. And when someone is being convicting, as the word here in Greek says, it's basically where a prosecuting attorney is just laying out the facts over and over and over again. He is laying out a case before a judge. And he is laying out a case before a judge in such a way that it is undeniable that the person he's laying the case out against is guilty and should be condemned and should be sentenced. That's what conviction means here. So when the Holy Spirit of God comes to this earth for the world, he is going to do what? He is going to make the case. And what is he going to make the case for? Well, number one, he's going to convict the world of their sin. Now, we know in a general sense that we're all sinners, right? The book of Romans tells us that. We are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. But do you realize how hard it is for you to try to convince someone that they're a sinner? Have you ever tried? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and talked to someone about their sin? Now, you can talk to someone and they're going to admit that, yeah, I've done things wrong. Most everybody's going to admit that they're not perfect. But to admit that they are a sinner and because they are a sinner, they deserve the wrath and judgment of God. Very few people are going to admit that if you try to convince them of that. That's why we cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. We cannot do it. Why? Because we cannot convince them of their sin. But what happens when you enter the presence of God? What happens? I'll tell you, every time you enter the presence of God, here's the thing you realize. You realize you are sinful. That's what you realize. If you don't believe that, go read Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, one of the clearest pictures in the Bible of when you come into the presence of God, you realize just who you are before a holy, omnipotent God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, Bible says that he goes before the throne of God in the year of King Uzziah's death. And he sees God. The Bible says that. And he sees God. And the train of God's robe fills the temple. 
And he sees these beings, these angels that are attending God. And how are they attending God? They're worshiping God. That's what they're doing. They're called seraphim. The word just means burning ones. For eternity, they're burning with the praise and the worship of God. They have six wings. They have to cover their face. They have to cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And they are crying out before God day and night, over and over, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. That is their song of worship. And Isaiah is taken into the presence of God. And what is Isaiah's reaction? What is his response? It's not wow. It's woe. Woe is me. Why? Because I am a sinful man. And I live among a sea of sinful people. And he falls on his face before God because he deserves to be dead. That's what he thinks is going to happen to me. Woe means destruction, death. That's what he thinks is going to happen because his sin is revealed in the presence of God. And then what does the seraphim do? One of them takes a coal from the altar and touches his lip. Why? To cleanse him. To forgive him so that he can stand in the presence of God. Righteous made right with God. That's what the presence of God does. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes and you stand in the presence of God and you're convicted of your sin, that's why it's because you're in his presence and there's nothing else you can do. So the presence of God convicts us of our sin. But of what sin? When we think of sin, we do think of sin in a general sense. All the things that we do that are wrong, whether it be lying or gossiping or all the things. I could list sins all day long. But I don't believe the Holy Spirit comes just to reveal all of our sin. The Holy Spirit of God comes to reveal the ultimate sin, the greatest sin. Now, I know we think in our heart, well, no sin is greater than the other, right? We say that. We teach our kids that. That's not true. It is not true. There is a sin that is greater and above all others. And it is the ultimate sin. And do you know what that sin is? Not believing in Jesus Christ. That is the sin that the Holy Spirit of God comes to convict the world of. You see, if I sin, there's going to be consequences to my sin, just in a general sense, right? If I go out and I speed and drive 100 miles an hour home and a policeman sees me, am I going to have consequences? Yeah, I'm going to have a speeding ticket, right? Okay, there's going to be consequences to that. But those consequences aren't eternal, are they? Now, it might feel like that with my insurance as it goes up for eternity, but it's not eternal consequences. But if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't put your faith and trust in him, is that consequence eternal? Of course it is. That's eternal consequence. There is one unpardonable sin in the Bible. Do you know what that unpardonable sin is? We call it blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But do you know what that is? Just saying no to the Holy Spirit. And how do you say no to the Holy Spirit? You deny his work. And what is his work? Convicting the world of its sin. The sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. The unpardonable sin. Why is that sin unpardonable? Because if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will never be made right with God. And if you're not made right with God, then you are separated from him for eternity, right? So the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of its sin. And it's sin of not believing in Jesus. But not only that, the Bible says that not only will he convict the world of sin, but he will convict the world of righteousness. Verse 10 says, righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. So what is righteousness? What is that there that Jesus is talking about? Well, if you look at the root word of righteousness, it's just right. It's right. 
And so for you to be made righteous means that you are made right with God. And the only way that you can be made right with God is for Jesus Christ to be taken from this world and to go to the Father. Why? Because he has to die on the cross. He has to rise from the grave. He has to go be with the Father so that those of us who are left on this earth, even though we cannot see him, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can believe in him. Why do you think Jesus tells Thomas? Those of us who don't see and who don't touch the scars will be more blessed than him. Because he goes to be with the father and we can see him no more. But yet when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of our sin and leads us, convicts us to righteousness, the belief, the faith, trust in Jesus Christ. Then we will be made right with God. What is the proof that Jesus Christ can make us right with God? Well, think about it like this. When Jesus Christ literally walked this earth right before John 16, There were a lot of people that did not think he was from God. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious elite did not think he was from God. Who did they think he was from? Satan. They even said his power comes from Satan. They said he is filled with demons. So what did they do to Jesus? Well, they crucified him. Why did they crucify him? Because he wasn't from God, but yet he claimed to be from God. So they crucified him. Before they crucified him, they scourged him. They flogged him. They spat on him. They plucked his beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Then they crucified him. Then Jesus died. That Friday night, when the Pharisees and religious elite and the Romans went to bed, they were right. Jesus wasn't from God. Why? He's still in the grave. Saturday morning, when they got up and had breakfast, were they right? Yeah, they were right. Saturday night, when they went to bed and went to sleep, were they right? They were right. But Sunday morning, guess what? They were wrong. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And why did he rise from the grave? So that everyone would know that he is who he said he is. And he came to do what he said he came to do. And he is righteousness. And he is the only one that can make you right with God. Now, you can deny that fact. You can deny the work of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And that's how we can know. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, he uses resurrection as his proof. Because guess who raised him from the dead in the beginning? Go read Romans 8. Who was it? It was the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8, 11. If you don't believe me, go read it. The Holy Spirit of God raised him from the grave. And then what does the Holy Spirit of God do? The Holy Spirit of God leads us to righteousness through Jesus Christ. And one final thing the Holy Spirit does in this world is it says he will convict the world of judgment. Verse 11 there of John 16. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Who's the ruler of this world? Well, it's Satan. It's the God of this world, the prince of the air. And the Bible says there that he has already been judged. Now that word there, already, is a perfect present tense. Which means this, it means that Satan has been judged, Satan is being judged, and Satan will be judged. It's eternal. It means for all of eternity, Satan 
is judged. That's what the word means. Now what happens to us if we do not believe the Holy Spirit when He convicts us of our sin and leads us to righteousness and we say no, then what happens to us? The same thing that will happen to Satan. And that's what we looked at last week in Luke chapter 16. We are condemned and we are judged for how long? Eternally. Perfect, passive, present tense. We've already been judged. We're judged today and we'll be judged forever. That's why the Bible says in Revelation that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. When? Before the foundation of this world. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of its sin, of its righteousness, and of coming judgment. But here's the question. How does the Holy Spirit do that? How does He do that? I want you to go back to John 16. Because there's a word you need to see here. Because this is what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to who? You. Now, who is Jesus Christ talking about? Who's he talking to here? He's talking to his followers, his disciples in the upper room right before the cross, correct? So who does the Holy Spirit of God come to? You. You and me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And then, who does the Holy Spirit convict? And when he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world of its sin, right? So who does he come to first? You and me, followers of Jesus. Then who does he convict? The world of its sin. So how in the world can the Holy Spirit of God work in the world if His presence is contained in our churches? Is that not true? Where does the Holy Spirit of God live? Who is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God? You and me, right? Correct? The Spirit of God indwells us when we believe in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. So we are the Spirit of God because He lives in us. Who does Jesus send the Spirit to? You. That's who He sends the Spirit to. But then He convicts the world. But if the Spirit of God is contained in our churches and never leaves these churches, then how will the world know? They won't. Correct? Is that not true? Well, yes, it's true. Go back to Isaiah. In Isaiah... After he sees himself before holy God. And after he is convicted of his sin. And after the seraphim comes and touches his lips with the coal of the altar. And after he is made right with God. Then God asks this question. This is what he says in verse 8 of Isaiah 6. Isaiah says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? And what does Isaiah say? Here am I. Send me. What does a messenger do? A messenger shares what? A message. To who? This people. 
just showed you in John 16, the last thing Jesus Christ said before he went to the cross. Do you know the last thing Jesus Christ said before he ascends up to the Father after the resurrection? It's Acts 1.8. Acts 1.9, he goes up to the Father. Acts 1.8, do you know what Jesus says? He says this, when the Spirit, the same Spirit he's talking about in John 16, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Who were his witnesses? His followers. Those who received the Spirit. And who receives the Spirit of God? You and me. And why do we receive the Spirit? Is it for our benefit? No. It's to save the world. Because only when you come into the presence of God do you understand how sinful you are. Think about that for a moment. Since Jesus is gone to be with the Father, and since Jesus sent His Spirit, the Spirit of God, to us, to live in us, who is the Spirit of God on this earth? Who is the presence of God on this earth? It's not a trick question. You and me, right? Why are we to be Christ-like? Why are we to be holy? Why are we to be righteous? Why is God sanctifying us every day of our life, making us into the image of Jesus? Because of John 16. Because He has sent us as messengers. He has sent us as witnesses. He has given us the gospel so that people may be saved. So why do you have the job you have? Why do you live in the neighborhood in which you live? Why has God given you a family and friends and relationships? I'll tell you why. Because He has sent you as a messenger to those people. That's why. That's why. And you are the presence of God for them. And when we live our life like Jesus walked this earth. In complete connection with God. Doing everything His will commands. And then we do it filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. What is the result? Go read the book of Acts. You'll see people just like you and me. The weak, that's what the Bible says. Paul says that. There are no mighty among you, only weak. You will see the weak turn the world upside down. Because they listened to the message of Jesus and just simply did what he said. And the world around them was changed forever. Why do you think we're here 2,000 years later? Because of what they did 2,000 years ago. They listened to the voice of Jesus and just had enough sense to believe Him. 
we would just return to the simple truth of the gospel. The simple command of Jesus. That in Northport, Alabama, 2,000 years later, we would see the exact same thing. How do I know? Because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word never changes. So what changed? We changed. And that's why our children don't know Jesus. That's why our teenagers don't believe. Because we simply won't do what he says. So how does God save the world? How does God save Northport, Alabama? How does God save your family? Through you. Through the Spirit of God in you. Working through you as you are just simply obedient to God's word. That's how. It is as simple as that. But it's through you. So bow with me, Lord. We come to you this morning. Just trying to grasp what you say. Lord, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. I pray your word would change the way we live. I pray your word would change everything about us and about this church. And I pray that we could just be obedient. So Lord, we just give you these moments as we close. We pray that you would bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen.